I'm going to read the passage of scripture for today. Um, So before you sit down, we're going to stand while we read. Um, If you do not have a Bible, if you can raise your hand, someone can bring you one. If you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you. Um, Today's reading is from Philippians 1. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Jesus Christ because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's good to gather with you today. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn and uh, always just uh, encouraged and grateful when Sunday comes uh, because we get to gather together to sing praises to our God, to sing over one another. I was reminded this week of how often the scriptures call us to sing. And so as we gather every week, it's just a joy to lift our voices together. And if you're struggling today uh, to have joy, to trust in the goodness and loving kindness of our God, there's a room full of people who are singing uh, on behalf for you, praising God for his grace and mercy. So I'm grateful to be able to now open up God's word with you and to jump into our text today. But let's go to the Lord in prayer before we do that. So would you pray with me? Father God, we uh, just come before you just rejoicing, giving thanks that we have the privilege, the opportunity to come and be together this morning to worship you through song, to worship you through the reading of your word and the confession of sin and prayer and the preaching of your word and communion and every aspect of what we do together this morning And God, I I thank you. I just thank you that you in this can remind us that we are not in this alone, that we're surrounded by brothers and sisters in Christ who are on this journey with us, running this race with us. And so Lord, I pray this morning in particular that you would encourage my friends here this morning that maybe aren't feeling particularly in community or feeling isolated or feeling alone. God, would you help remind them this morning that they have a family here. And Lord, I pray also that as we open up your word, that as the word goes out today, that it would not return void. Lord, I pray that you'd bring conviction to our lives this morning. And in particular, I pray, God, that you would actually change us today. As we dive into this text, that you would actually mold us and shape us and help us to become more like Christ today because we've been here, because we've gathered together under the authority of your holy word. God, may your word impact our hearts and our lives and not just our minds. And Father, I just pray that as I preach this morning that you would be exalted and that you 
would be glorified. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that in this moment, through your living and active word, that you would work. And we submit this time to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I graduated from college, uh, what now seems like a long time ago. Uh, and I made, what I majored in in college was communication. And not so much on the PR side or mass comm side of things. My focus in my degree was on communication theory. And so I spent a whole lot of time kind of studying and thinking about how communication affects our lives, how it affects relationships, organizations, uh, really just every aspect of our life and world, whether written or spoken communication. And I guess it worked out okay, uh, because I spent a whole lot of time thinking about and working on writing and speaking and communicating. You know, all substantive communication is word-based, I know there's nonverbal communication, but at the end of the day, the, the main aspect of communication, the heart of a message is delivered with words in some way. And the power of words in culture has transcended time. We can look back through all culture in all different ways and see how impactful words can be in our lives. And we can look back just even in our own history, in our own country, and see the significance of this. We could think about uh, speeches like Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech or his letter from Birmingham Jail. Or maybe you think of stuff like the Gettysburg Address that maybe you had to memorize in school. These speeches that kind of stand the test of time that we could go back and listen to or watch or read, and they still have an impact on our lives and culture. But it's not just long speeches that have that kind of impact. There's also those specific quotes or phrases or maxims that we've heard over the course of our life that we still remember, and sometimes they're funny or sometimes they do actually challenge the way that we think. Ben Franklin's been attributed to him that he said, in this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. Another famous quote maybe you've heard before is the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And for the baseball fans out there, there's the famous, it ain't over till it's over. Or maybe for some of you, you've heard this one that's been attributed to Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., the famous 19th century humorist and poet who was the father of Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., who went on to become a Supreme Court justice. This quote was attributed to Holmes. It says, some people are so heavenly-minded that they are no earthly good. What's Holmes talking about when he says that? What is he saying? What's he critiquing in this kind of pithy statement that maybe you've heard before? Simply this, that he believed that some Christians, those that seek to follow Christ, have their heads and their hearts and their sights and their minds so set on heaven that they are completely worthless here on earth not caring about doing anything in particularly good, helping society while they're here. So the question for us this morning is, is that true? Is Holmes' critique accurate? Is that actually the call for the Christian? That maybe just the wider culture just doesn't quite understand. That that is what we're supposed to be about. So focused on heaven that we really don't care much about life here. I mean, we can look at Scripture and we see that we're called to be sojourners and exiles, that this place is not our home. One of the reasons we named the church Sojourn Church is to be reminded of that, that our hope isn't in the kingdom of this world, but is in the kingdom of God. And that, as Philippians 3, as we'll get to in a few months, says that we're citizens of heaven. So, in this life, is that the life that Holmes is critiquing, is that the life that the follower of Christ is actually called to strive to live out? 
Well, as we jump into our text today, we're going to look at one of the most well-known and memorable phrases in the book of Philippians and maybe within the whole New Testament. And what we'll see is this. If you are faithful to Jesus, if you are faithful to the life he has called you to, you will be so heavenly-minded, you are of great earthly good. You'll be so heavenly-minded, you're of great earthly good. So let's dive into Philippians 1 again this morning, and may God bless the preaching of his word. Like much of the letter of Philippians, this section that we're reading that was read already this morning is very autobiographical. Paul, as he seeks to encourage the Philippians, is using examples about his own heart and his own life. He's just kind of sharing what's on his heart and his mind as he seeks to encourage this church. And as we jump into verse 18, you likely have a new heading in your Bible that's in the middle of verse 18, and really what that's showing us is this is kind of a continuing thought. What follows after verse 18 is just a continuing thought for Paul from where we left off last week. So look at all of verse 18. Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Last week, Tom showed us how Paul is seeking to advance the gospel, the good news that Jesus has come to rescue us and to redeem us, a lost people, people from every tribe, every language, and every nation, that Paul is called to do that, and he does it in the midst of his circumstances, regardless of what those circumstances are, for the glory of God. And he's encouraging the Philippians to live the same kind of way. He's encouraging us to live the same kind of life. He goes so far as to say what we looked at last week, that even when people are preaching the gospel with wrong motivation, Paul trusts in the sovereignty of God. He trusts in the sovereignty of God to overcome our sin, to overcome our struggles, to overcome our mixed motivations that we always have in the midst of our lives to make disciples of Jesus. And for that, he rejoices. But notice, he doesn't simply rejoice in the present, but as we look at our text today, he will continue to rejoice. He's looking forward to what's to come. Why does he say that? Well, he gives us the answer in verses 19 and 20. Let's read them again. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And what's Paul talking about here? Well, it's important to remember the significance of the backdrop from which he's writing this letter. Paul is sitting in a prison cell as he writes these words. And that's important for us to be reminded of as we walk all through the book of Philippians. Because if we miss that, if we forget the fact that Paul is chained and shackled, that he is in prison for preaching Jesus, then we will miss the weightiness of the words that Paul shares with us in this letter. And the reason he can rejoice is because he knows, he says, he will be delivered. But but what does he mean by that? What is the object of his deliverance? Well, at first, it's just kind of obvious, right? He, He seems to be thinking about getting out of prison, that he'll be delivered from prison. He's confident in that. But when we get to the verse of the end of verse 20, we see that he has, what does he say, full courage, 
that Christ will be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. So it seems as if Paul is saying, well, if I get, I'm going to get out of prison, so that's what I'm confident in. But then he says, but maybe I'm going to live and maybe I'm going to die. So is the deliverance only focused on his release from prison? It seemed to be a contradiction if that's all he was thinking about. Now see, the deliverance that Paul is talking about that he's confident in is a deliverance that all of us can celebrate. Because the deliverance that Paul is talking about is eternal deliverance. The word deliverance translated from the original language is the same word we see throughout the New Testament for salvation. Which might also, in this moment, include a temporary release and deliverance from prison. But Paul isn't confident in that. He's not confident in himself. He's not confident in the changing of his circumstances. What Paul is confident in is that his Savior will fully and actually save him. See, ultimate freedom for Paul isn't about being freed from jail. It's about being freed from sin and the brokenness of this world. And so he rejoices because he knows Jesus wins in the end. He rejoices because he's united with Christ. And because he's united with Christ, it means he wins in the end. And the same is true for us. If you are in Christ, you win in the end, not because you figured it all out, not because your life is perfect, not because all of your circumstances work out in the way that the world would say, that's great, that looks good. You win in the end because Jesus will come again to rule and reign, and there will be no more sin, and there will be no more suffering. But now, Paul finds himself in a Roman prison. And, and he knows that he'll come and he'll have to stand before the Roman government to give an account for his life. More specifically, to give an account for the fact that he's preaching Jesus Christ and him crucified. But even though this can be a terrifying reality that Paul understands very clearly could very well end in his execution. He says that he's eagerly expecting, he has eager expectation and hope that he will not be ashamed. Now, again, we've talked about this before, but I think it's important for us to remember that, that this hope isn't a wishful thinking. I think sometimes we use the word hope in, in the wrong way, right? Like, I, I hope it doesn't rain today. Or I hope the Redskins actually win a football game. You know, I, I hope that these things are going to happen. And it, we say it in that way of like, I have no idea what's going to happen. It's, it kind of seems like maybe a little bit of a pipe dream in some circumstances. But biblical hope is rooted in certainty. Biblical hope is rooted in, rooted in who helps us, who we have hope in. And so when Paul says he eagerly expects, he hopes, he's not saying, well, I, I guess, I mean, I hope this works out okay. No, he's saying, I know because of who my hope is in. It's in my God. And he is faithful. And so Paul will go and he'll stand before this tribunal and he'll testify to his singular passion, the person and work of Jesus. And he will not be ashamed. He will not be ashamed because God will give him the strength and the power to help him to preach Jesus, even though he knows it could cost him his very life. Paul will go and he will not be ashamed because the gospel is not a message to be ashamed of. The gospel is the power of God for salvation for all who believe. So Paul knows that the good news of what Jesus has done is his only hope. 
And he also knows that what Jesus has done is the only hope of his accusers. And he's the only hope of the Philippians. And he's the only hope for each of us that sit here this morning. See, Paul is full of courage that Christ will be exalted through him whether he lives or dies because he will seek no matter what to lift high the name of Jesus. But notice, I don't want us to skip over something in verse 19. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says he's rejoicing over his deliverance. He's rejoicing over his salvation, whether that comes in a more temporal way of getting released from prison or in an ultimate way of being with Jesus. Why? Because of the prayers of the Philippians and the help of the Holy Spirit. We can learn something from this. Our prayers can affect the confidence and the deliverance of our brothers and sisters. Our prayers can affect the confidence and deliverance of our brothers and sisters who in particular are having a difficult time in life right now. Whether that's people here in this community or our brothers and sisters that are being persecuted for their faith all over the world, literally sitting in a jail cell, not sure what's going to happen tomorrow for them. We can pray for them and God will work in that to give them confidence, to give them strength in the midst of the difficulties and challenges of life. Listen, you cannot do life. You cannot do ministry apart from the persistent and believing prayers of the community of God, the family of God. Hear what I said there. I'm not just saying you need to pray for yourself, that you have confidence, that you can endure these things, but you cannot do life. You cannot do ministry apart from the people around you persistently coming before the throne of God, believing that God will move and act in your life. It's a reminder again of how much we need God's people in our life. Paul has prayed for the Philippians. We looked at that a few weeks ago. But now he's asking them to pray for him, to pray for his deliverance. But this isn't because Paul is feeling down about his circumstances. Notice his prayer really isn't for his own sake. He's praying That God would bring about deliverance in his life for their sake. So once again, Paul's testifying to the fact that he isn't living for his own comfort. He isn't living for his own personal advancement. He is living for the advancement of the gospel in the world and in the lives of the Philippians. This leads to verse 21. Verse 21 is the tent pole that holds up this section of the book of Philippians. Maybe even the whole letter of the Philippians, to the Philippians. Paul has just said that he will rejoice because he knows that no matter what, he will be saved, whether he lives or whether he dies. So the Philippian people might be wondering from from verse 20, how will Christ be honored, Paul, if you die? I don't understand that. And so Paul drops this memorable maxim on the Philippians, but it isn't just a a bombshell statement for them. This is an earth-shattering statement for all who take it to heart. Let's look at verse 21 again. What does it say? For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, whether you've heard this verse before, maybe some of you have memorized it, and maybe some of you have never heard it before, but it's worth taking some time to actually understand what Paul is saying here. Because if we just take a cursory look at this, this is only a few words. If we just kind of quickly look over it and be like, yeah, that sounds pretty pretty good. Sounds like a good thing to say, good thing to believe. It sounds nice in our ears. Maybe it even looks good hanging up on the wall in our house or on the background of your computer screen or the wallpaper for your phone. 
And those are good things. It's good to be reminded of God's word, to be reminded of God's truth. But if that's all that it is, I think we're missing the intent of what Paul's saying here. I think we're missing the the depth of what the Holy Spirit is calling us to, that this should be a life-shaping reality for us. In these next few verses, Paul elaborates a bit more on what he said in verse 21. He says if he continues to live, he'll have fruitful ministry. But advancing the gospel in the lives of the Philippians and anyone and everyone he comes in contact with. But his desire is to be with Jesus. In fact, he says it's far better for me to be with Jesus than it is to be with you. And he, he says he's hard-pressed. I, I don't know which one I will choose in the end. But what, what is Paul really getting at here? What is he trying to communicate to the Philippians and to us? He's saying, let me tell you how Christ will be honored whether I live or die. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. See, what Paul's declaring in this text is Christ is everything for me. It's everything. He's everything for me. And so he's declaring what living and dying mean to him. He's not just saying Christ is life. Like people say baseball is life or food is life or music is life or gym is life or whatever word you want to put in there, whatever bumper sticker you might have seen that say something along those lines. Paul is talking about the focus of his life, the motivation for his life. Everything he does, he does in light of and for Christ. Paul's chief end is to glorify God by lifting high the name of Jesus. And so if he continues to live, it will remain the same, to make much of Jesus in all that he does. But if he should be martyred for his faith, he's not despairing. Because it's gain for him. Now, it's important for us to see what Paul is and isn't saying about death. He isn't viewing death as an escape from a painful life. In fact, as we read through and study the book of Philippians, what we see is is that instead his painful life is actually a joyful life. And the reason he has joy even in his painful circumstances is because his life is focused on Christ. So this isn't gain in the sense of escape, but gain in that Christ, his greatest treasure, that he'll get to be with him face to face forever and ever. See, death is no threat to Paul, but that's because to live is Christ for Paul. Jesus is the center of everything, not because he's cut from a different cloth, though, it's not like Paul's like, well, he's, I mean, that's Paul, right? Like, he's like a, an uber-Christian, like super-Christian. Like, that makes sense that he would say something like that. But, but why does Paul say something like this? Why does Paul think about Christ in this way? Why is Jesus everything for Paul? The reason is, is because Jesus has so invaded Paul's life. He's so upended Paul's life. Paul was rescued from the righteous wrath of God. He was rescued from the torments of eternal hell and damnation. Jesus saved Paul. He rescued Paul out of darkness when Paul had no desire and wanted to know nothing of Christ. And so Paul knows with 100% certainty that apart from Christ, he would still be dead and still be in darkness. He knows that he is utterly dependent on Jesus in every way. As we've said often here before, the gospel changes everything for you. And we need to be reminded of that regularly because I think oftentimes we set that aside. We forget that truth, that reality. But when Christ comes into your life, you cannot and will not remain the same. And Paul is a perfect example of that for us. Here's a man 
who his singular passion in life was to take Christians and throw them in jail and even see some of them killed. And now Christ comes to bear in this man's life and he is sitting in jail and might die for preaching Jesus. That doesn't just happen. Jesus invaded Paul's life and transformed his life. He shapes everything for Paul and he allows him to view his suffering in light of God's big picture and big plan and purposes and promises. Life's purpose for Paul is crystal clear because in it he gets to make much of his Savior. And death has lost its sting for Paul because in it he gets his Savior. See, at the end of the day, Paul isn't living for pleasure. He's not living for comfort. At the end of the day, Paul isn't living for Paul. He's living all of life for Christ, for the advancement of his gospel and his glory. To live is Christ and to die is gain. This is the maxim of Paul's life, not because he was some kind of super Christian, but because he has a super savior who's sovereign over every aspect of his life, one who is worthy and worth our entire life. Verse 21 is an amazing verse. It says so much in so few words. There's a reason it's remembered. But listen, it's one thing to know this verse. It's quite a different thing to actually live this out. Oliver Wendell Holmes said, some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. I think he was off in this, but not far off. See, our struggle as followers of Christ, and maybe particularly American Christians, is not that our heads and our hearts and our minds are so set on heaven that we do nothing of any good here. The problem is, is that our heads and our hearts are so set on earth that we tend to look like the rest of the world. We're not captivated often by the treasure that Christ is in his kingdom. We're captivated by the pursuit of self and satisfaction and the siren call of this world. As C.S. Lewis famously said, aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. To live is Christ. To die is gain. This certainly flips the world's view of life and death on its head, but I think it flips oftentimes the Christian's view of life and death on its head because oftentimes those who claim Christ ascribe more to the ways and thoughts of the world than we might like to admit. Sure, we give head nods to Jesus in our life, but is he truly, genuinely the center of everything for you? Does your life revolve around Christ. Are you more concerned with victory of your political ideology than you are victory of Christ rescuing your neighbor from sin and death? Are you more concerned with the advancement of your personal rights at the cost of your integrity than you are laying down all of your rights and wants and desires if it means keeping your integrity? Are you more concerned with personal comfort and ease than you are for sacrificial living in laying down your life for the sake of others in the name of Jesus. See, friends, when Jesus isn't everything for us, we, we start to compromise in our life. Again, we may give acknowledgement to Christ. We may not completely set him aside, but we can start to look at his word and the commands and call that he has on our life and say, well, I'm not quite sure that applies to me. 
because I really desire this thing. I desire this job. I desire this relationship. I desire these way of living in this lifestyle of comfort and ease. And so, yes, Christ is an important part of my life, but he isn't the center of my life. We start to settle for things that are less glorious and less worthy of our lives. See, I think what Paul's reminding us of here, of us here, is to live as Christ to die as gain. When he says that, it confronts the false gospel that the blessing of God only comes in good, comfortable, low-cost circumstances. If anything, Paul's reminding us that it's the complete opposite of that. That oftentimes it's in the midst of difficulty, it's in the midst of challenge that God does his most significant work in us and through us. See, in the end, Philippians 1.21 presses on the core of what we worship in this life, what our true and lasting hope actually is. And this is so counter to a me-first culture. And we live in a me-first culture, as Eric reminded us in our liturgy this morning, that 24-7, 365 days a year, the world is tempting you and calling you away from Christ. And what it's calling you to is to put yourself first. It makes self-fulfillment its ultimate goal and entitlement its natural fruit. And if we believe that to live is anything but Christ, listen to me, if we believe that to live is anything but Christ, then death will be anything but gain to us. And then we see that in the world. The world doesn't think that way. Death is the end of something. It's a, something to be upset about because we're missing out on what life is, whatever that tangible thing is for us here and now. And if that's the case for us, if anything but Christ is life for us, then death will be anything but gain for us. And then that, what that means for you and for me is that I will not, you will not endure all things for the sake of Christ. And his people, if you're not knowing Christ, if you're not abiding in Christ, if you're not treasuring Christ above all. And this text for me has been really challenging to me this week as I've been thinking about it and reflecting on it and studying this week. And, and I know this verse. Like if you called me up at three in the morning, I'm not, this is not a suggestion by the way. <clears throat> if you called me up at three in the morning and just said, quick, what's Philippians 121? I, I think I would be able to tell you what it is. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Okay, go back to bed. Right? I think I'd be able to say that. I know this verse. But what I've been thinking about as I've been praying and thinking about this is I realize I know it, but I often don't see it lived out in my life. Like if I'm honest about my own life, do I really see that? Do I, do, can I just say that with my mouth? But is it the reality of my life? Is Jesus everything for me? Does he shape everything for me? And, and recently I've been wrestling with discontentment. And I'm still praying through that, seeking to repent of that. Thankfully, the book of Philippians will talk about that as well. But what I know is at the core of it, what God has been showing me, even over these last few weeks, is that my discontentment is often rooted in my self-focus. And so I was reminded of a verse in John chapter 3, verse 30, where, the, where John the Baptist is talking about Jesus. And he says this, he declares this, he, meaning Jesus, must increase, but I must decrease. And as I thought about that and thought about this verse, to live as Christ, to die as gain, what I realize, what I recognize is that I often choose Justin over Jesus. Placing my wants and my needs above that which Christ is calling me to. And so this week I've been repenting and I need to continue to do so. Asking God to fill me with his spirit and give me that single-minded focus on knowing Christ and making him known and being totally fine playing the background for my Savior who lived and died for me. 
See, I want Jesus to be the single guiding principle and person of my life. That's what Paul is calling us to, just like it was for him. That's what I want for you, too. So let me ask you this morning, where are you right now? Do you simply know Philippians 1.21, or is it the reality of your life? And if you're not sure, press a little bit further into your heart, into your mind, and think about this, that if you've forgotten what Christ has actually done for you, where your reality would be, what your life would be like if Christ hadn't rescued you, if you don't reflect on that regularly, thinking about that and looking forward to the glorious future inheritance that he has for you, that may be a good place to start. Is this just something you say with your mouth? that you could recite, that you could share with someone else, or is it the shaping reality of your life? And if you, like me, are recognizing a disparity in part of your life or all of your life, there's good news. God graciously reminded of that a few weeks ago, and in the providence and sovereignty of God, he reminded us of it this morning. Philippians 1.6, again, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. God isn't done with you yet. You are still alive right now, breathing, thinking. And you may recognize in your life that right now to live isn't Christ, but you can repent of that. You can turn away from that. So what are we supposed to do in the midst of that? Well, we come back to the one who even now says to you, follow me. Christ is our greatest treasure, and he is still the one who rescues us from our wayward ways and our wandering thoughts and our false worship. And he renews our vision for life. But this returning to Christ being the center of our lives is something we're going to have to come back to over and over and over again because the world is going to tempt us away over and over and over again. Colossians chapter 3 tells us a way for us to practice this, to see Christ as the center of our life. Colossians 3 tells us, since Christ is raised, since he's alive, sitting on the throne, set your gaze on him and not the things of this earth. And then Paul says a few verses later that as you set your gaze on Christ, then you can put to death what is earthly in you. See, when we want to make Christ the center, we look back to him, see him seated on the throne. This is the process of ongoing faith and repentance, trusting again in the goodness of Christ and who he is and what he's done for you, turning away from whatever else you've put above him. Faith and repentance are the two primary disciplines of the Christian life. But it's not something we're just called to do on our own, like just, well, hey, have some more faith. Do some more repentance. No, God in his love for us gives us means of grace to cultivate a life of faith, to cultivate a life of repentance. He gives us his living and active word, which we submit our lives to that interpret our lives for us and call us into repentance. He gives us community to help with that. Brothers and sisters around us to encourage us to reset our gaze and reorient our life around Christ, to point out things in our life where we're not believing the gospel and we're following something else besides Jesus. He gives us communion that we take every week to be reminded of what Christ has done for us and what that means for us, what he's accomplished for us. He gives us disciplines and means of grace like fasting, 
where we literally set aside things of this world, food and other things like that, and say, I don't need this as much as I need Jesus right now. He gives us worship corporately as we sing together, as we're reminded, as I reminded you, reminded myself again this morning to come together to be sung over, to sing praises to God, but also worship throughout your life. That as you think about everything you do, as you go to work tomorrow morning, as you're hanging out with your kids on Thursday afternoon or hanging out with your friends on Friday evening, that all of that is an opportunity to give worship to God. That everything you do can be for His glory. Listen, when Christ becomes everything for you, everything else becomes less. And nothing else in this world is worth holding on to if it means setting Jesus aside. Nothing. Not a job, not a particular dating relationship or friendship, no material possession, nothing else in this life is worth holding on to if it means setting Jesus aside. And so if Christ is not your treasure, if Jesus is not the center of your life, friend, please repent. Repent and turn to him in faith today so that you can not only say these words, but live these words out in your life. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And see, the beauty of this is that as we seek to abide in Jesus, as we seek to center our life around him, then and only then will we, will we be able to actually do what he's called us to do. Because we actually live like we believe that apart from Christ, we can do nothing for Christ. When Jesus is the center of your life, he reorients the trajectory of your entire life. He invades your life in such a significant way that he will map things out in a different way for you than if you weren't following him. So what might God do in your life if Jesus was actually the center of it? What might God do in the life of our church if Jesus is the center of it? What if we didn't only memorize this glorious declaration made by Paul but actually believed it? Might it mean that we see a culture in our lives and in our church of of things like persistent prayer? Believing prayer, that we, we come before the throne often and regularly because we know that apart from God working in us and through us, we can accomplish nothing. Might it look like a culture of a relentless pursuit of God through his word, that we so want to know our God, that we so want to know our Savior, that we come to his word expectant. God, speak to me. I need this. I, I have nothing apart from you speaking to me. Might it look like a culture of rampant evangelism that as we look out and walk out into our city and into our jobs and onto our campus or into our middle school or high school, that as we see people all around us that don't know Christ, that we recognize that Christ is not life for them, so death is not gain for them. We have to tell them about Jesus. Might it look like an unwavering pursuit of holiness and humility that as we feast on who Christ is, as we focus on who Christ is, that it compels us to become more like him, walking a life of holiness and humility as he's modeled for us. Maybe it would look like a life of prolific servanthood, where you are so engaged with meeting the needs of others and serving the body of Christ that we are scrambling to find opportunities and things for you to do. Maybe it would look like a culture of radical generosity, We say, God, everything is yours. Nothing is mine. I don't need to hold on to any of this because this isn't my life. You are my life. So God, what do you want to do with it? 
What do you want to do with my time? What do you want to do with my talents? What do you want to do with my resources? I want to give them away. I want to use them for you. Maybe in our life and in our church, it would look like a culture of being a merciful community to our community. That we reflect on the mercy we've received in Christ, and so we want to go out and show mercy to everyone and anyone around us. Maybe it would look like every person in this church is actually connected in a transformational community where we actually speak truth to one another, where we remind one another that Christ is worthy of everything. Listen, you don't need a pastor to do any of this. You just need Jesus. And it's for every person in this room who's a follower of Christ, men and women. We are a priesthood of believers, all of us, filled with the Holy Spirit, empowered to do the work God has called us to. You don't need me. You don't need any of our other pastors. You just need our Savior who sits on the throne. And you can do those things wherever you find yourself, at your workplace, at home, in your neighborhood, at cam- on campus, in your school, wherever you find yourself, to live as Christ, to die as gain. Sojourn, that's what I desire for you because that's what Jesus desires for you. So when we look back at our text, we see in verses 24 through 26 that though Paul longs to be with Jesus, he's confident he'll be freed from prison, not for his own sake, but for the sake of others. What he's saying is, I will continue to live for Christ so that you can continue to live for Christ. What he's saying is, because I'm striving to be so heavenly minded, I can still be of great earthly good. Church, what might God do if we had the same heart and the same mind, if we centered on and were satisfied in Christ, living not for ourselves, but for our Savior? Brothers and sisters, may your life's goal, may your life's breath, may your life's exaltation be Christ, Christ, Christ. And in your final breath, may your words be gain, gain, gain. Hallelujah. Amen. Jesus showed us what a sold-out life looks like when he laid down his life for us. And we take communion every week to be reminded of that, both to celebrate what Christ has done and be refreshed in his sacrifice for us, and we identify with him in that. As we eat the bread, we declare something. We declare that Christ's body was broken for us. As we drink the cup, we declare something. That Christ's blood was shed for us. As we do these things together, we declare that our only hope is in Jesus and that to live is Christ and to die is gain. As we partake in communion, we declare that our only hope in life and death is that we do not belong to ourselves, but belong to God. And so if you're united to Jesus, I want to invite you to come to the table this morning. Eat the bread and drink the cup and declare, all I have is Christ. He's all I need. Maybe you find yourself this morning, though, struggling or or recognizing that while you know these words, they haven't been a reality for your life. And you feel conviction. That's the Holy Spirit speaking to you. And so don't rush to the table in that moment. Just take a moment. You've got time. You've got space to sit in your seat, to pray, to repent, and then come to the table to be refreshed in the goodness and grace of God for you. Take that time. If you're wandering away, come home today, friend. In the name of Jesus, come home. And if you don't call yourself a follower of Christ, that maybe you came with a friend this morning or you're checking out church or checking out Jesus, we're so glad that you're here this morning. 
but we would just ask you not to come forward to the table. And the reason for that is because as we do that, as I just said, it's a declaration that our only hope is in Christ. And so if that's not yet true for you, I just ask you to hang in your seat. Nobody's going to be paying attention to the fact that you're not getting up, but just hang in your seat and, and pray and ask God if you're ready right now to say, I, I haven't known Christ, but I want to know him. Man, tell God that this morning. Call on the name of Jesus. Take Christ today. And then let somebody around you know that so we can walk with you in it. For those of you that will come forward, you can come to the tables at the front or the back. Take a small piece of bread and a small cup and hear the words of what Christ has done for you spoken over you today. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for this opportunity we've had to gather together this morning, this opportunity we've had to listen to your word. And so, God, I just ask this morning, on behalf of all of us, that you'd forgive us. God, would you forgive us for putting anything in that spot that we fill in that blank, not with to live as Christ, but to live as something else besides Christ. God, please forgive us. Show us mercy and grace even now in this moment for where we haven't been able to actually say that we're not just knowing these words, but actually living them out. God, we ask for your grace. We ask for your Holy Spirit to work in us so that this can actually be a reality for us, individually and as a church. God, would you mold us and shape us in such a way that we truly and genuinely believe that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then God, would you use us in a significant way to make an impact in the lives of one another, in the lives of Fairfax, and the lives of people all over the world. Not for our glory, but for yours. May Christ be exalted through Sojourn Church. We pray this in his name. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready.